And welcome in, everybody, to what is odd, what is different, what is without. It is the first time ever since they started the NCAA tournament in 1939 for the Men's Division I Championship. We don't have a tournament. They even played through World War II. They played through all kinds of different situations, but we cannot uh, play a tournament in 2020 because of the outbreak of the coronavirus or COVID-19 virus throughout the world and specifically in the United States. We're basically right now isolating. We're on lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. So no NCAA tournament canceled, uh, not going to be made up, and, and what a shame. So what... I wanted to do here uh, with this podcast and this idea is reminisce with some friends here and have the opportunity to uh, uh, friends in the media to talk and and uh, go back in time to some of their favorite memories on the first two days specifically. There's so much magic now that the field of 68 becomes 64 on the first Thursday and Friday of 32 games in those two days. And what about the memories? and the the moments that stick out the most. And so I think you're going to have fun with us going back down memory lane and telling some stories. Straight ahead, Mike DeCourcy will be with me, the Hall of Fame basketball writer from the Sporting News, one of the preeminent writers and voices of the game over the last 30-plus years of college basketball. I look forward to talking with Mike about first-round games, first- and, and second-day games on Thursday and Friday and the first weekend, etc. He's got some great stories to tell. Deshaun Tate will also be with me as well from the All-Sports Station, the over-the-air uh, FM All-Sports Station, 92.9 The Game, 92.9 FM in Atlanta. Deshaun will be here with some stories. Of course, the Final Four was supposed to be in his town, in Atlanta, but he'll have some thoughts, some comments on opening rounds, and we'll tell some great stories about all of this. And then Matt Zimmick will round things out. I love Matt's uh, insight, and plus he's out in the West uh, in Phoenix at the time that we're taping this. He's got some uh, great West Coast perspective on the first rounds uh, of years gone by. Just look forward to telling stories with all of these guys and reminiscing and having fun with you, the College Hoop fan. Now, do me this favor. Wherever you found this podcast, through a social media link, uh, embedded link through a website, etc. Subscribe to it. It'll come automatically to you if you subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify, Google Podcast, uh, Spreaker, etc., etc. Love, love the feedback we're getting from the audience. But the easiest way to get the show whenever there's a new one is if you subscribe, because then the automatic notification comes. Hey, there's a new one. Ding on your phone, on your iPad, and you're right there with us on College Basketball Coast to Coast. By the way, the Twitter handle at CBB Coast to Coast with the number two at CBB Coast the number two Coast is how you can keep up with the show on Twitter as well. I am merely your somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. I've got some guests. Let's get to it. Let's start reminiscing and talking NCAA tournament. We won't have a tournament for 2020, but we still got our memories, and we can relive some of these big moments. We're going to do it right now on the show. Let's go. Yes, we are trying to get through all of it, whether you want to call it March Sadness or a March Without or whatever you want to call it here. It is unusual, and to help me in a little bit of group therapy, I've enlisted some great guests. And leading off with me, I I can find no one else that would be a better resource, that would be more fun to give me some insight and cheer me up than the man that has uh, covered over 30 NCAA tournaments and Final Fours. I have gotten to be around him and interview him for a bunch of them leading up to and during a Final Four, etc. Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News, longtime columnist and writer, is back with me on College Basketball 
coast to coast. So many people have been concerned about me. What are you going to do here this March? What are you doing without these games? I said, look, we'll find a way to get through it. But I'm going to ask you the same thing. Here we are now on what would traditionally be the first Thursday and Friday. How are you doing, Mike DeCourcy? Because we're all going cold turkey without. Yeah, it's been really hard. I have to say that uh, I was in... I was in Indianapolis, came back from Chicago for the first round, and as it turned out, the only round of the the Big Ten tournament. Uh, I was in Chicago in the BTN studios working that night with John Beeline and Tim Miles. You can tell who had the worst coaching record on that panel. Uh, (laughs) And and so I I worked that night, um, and then I came, flew back that morning to Indianapolis and went straight to... Uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse expecting a tournament, albeit with no spectators. And I was there when the Rutgers players came off the court and they didn't seem like super psyched up getting ready to go back in the locker room, get final instructions, but I didn't think anything of it. Uh, I, I, I noted it in my head, but I didn't really process it. And then I went out to the court and eventually learned that there was there were going to be no games that the tournament was off and from then on the rest of thursday i was working first on writing stories about the cancellation of the big 10 tournament and then awaiting the fate of the ncaa's and when i wrote got the final word for 18 p.m i think it was on thursday a week ago i wrote about that and when i got to the end of that i gotta admit i was emotional i mean it felt like a massive loss to see the NCAA tournament go away for this year. And, uh, and, and it's felt kind of empty since. But over the weekend, uh, I, I, CBS was showing old Big Ten tournament games and old Atlantic Ten tournament games in the slot they would have been in. I couldn't watch. It hurt too much. Mm. And, you know, now it's faded a little bit. I mean, I, 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 you're, you're kind of getting used to what the circumstance we're in. I've been mostly at home. Since all since since Friday of last week, uh, after I left, uh, or I really Thursday Thursday afternoon of last week, after I left Banker's Life and came home, I've been mostly here and starting to get used to the idea of no tournament. But I still feel terrible for, you know, I saw I think it was Emmanuel Quickly from Kentucky t- tweet out uh, an hour or so ago uh, that he should have been getting ready for a tournament game. Uh, whether it was Thursday or Friday with his brothers. And obviously that's not going to happen. And hopefully, uh, you know, I, I don't know what Emmanuel will do. I, I don't know there's going to be a crush of interest for him in the first round of the NBA draft. So I hope he comes back. I think he can be a first-team All-American next year. I think he can lead a great Kentucky team uh, toward the Final Four next year, which would be – that'd be pretty cool for if you were Kentucky and you could get into the Final Four next year because it's three hours up the road for – those in Lexington and even closer for a lot of people who live in other parts of Kentucky because the turn of the final four is next year scheduled for Indianapolis. Well, right. And so we have to start uh, looking ahead. I've said this on so many different interviews, so many different places. We even said it. We did a selection Sunday night show, even without a bracket back on Sunday. And I said it on, on that show we are just left with a bucket full, uh, if if not a wheelbarrow full of what if. 
And yeah. and for so much of it, it is it is sad because we don't know what Dayton would have been able to do in this tournament. We don't know what San Diego State would have been able to do, uh, especially if you start talking Sweet 16, if they got their Elite Eight, could they get to the Final Four? Could they win games? Uh, and on and on. Could could teams have put runs together, put things together to make their first Final Four, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so unlike the NBA and the NHL, which have hit a pause button at the end of their regular season and, and because of all the circumstances can come back in the summer, resume and play if they are able to and finish their season or unlike baseball, you know this, Mike, and I'm just saying this for the audience, and it's just obvious. Baseball never started, but they can still start later and finish. This is the only one that was going along that doesn't get to finish. Bang, it's over, and we're left with all the what-ifs, right? I mean, that's that's the sentiment I hear in the tone of your voice. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I feel terrible for the teams that... And the other thing is that is that college basketball is so much more transitory than most of the other sports you're discussing. Even if those sports face cancellations, a lot of the same guys are going to be in a lot of the same places a year from now. But that doesn't work for seniors in college basketball. It doesn't doesn't work like that. You're not able to stay in the same place. Uh, you have to move on. They, your eligibility is up. And although there's been discussion, uh, Mike Krzyzewski most prominently – uh, Fran Fraschilla and Dick Vitale also spoke about the possibility of granting seniors an extra year of eligibility. The NCAA doesn't major in complicated stuff. I mean, that's not their deal. They don't like complicated <laughs> at all, and it's complicated. It would be hard, and it, but they don't like complicated and hard. So I don't I, – I never – although I had hope, I never really believed that that's what they'll do, and I still – they have not closed that door, but I don't think it'll stay open. I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. So guys who are senior players uh, will 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 never get the chance to be with the like, Lamar Stevens is probably the best example. Uh, Penn State when he gets there isn't very good. They make him a little better than last year. They have a terrible year. Then this year they get up to the top twenty five ish type program. Certainly in the NCAA tournament um, this year. And now uh, you know Lamar came back just for that and. <laughs> Not only does he not get to play in the tournament and the Big Ten tournament, but I think he finished like 15 points or something like that short of being the all-time leading scorer at Penn State. So, I mean, <laughs> every, just about everything that could be taken away from him yep. was taken Sadly. away. Uh, yeah, and, and and all these kinds of things. Believe, it, it, let me put my asterisk here so we can just have a conversation. All these kinds of things pale in comparison to people who are getting ill and worse. No doubt. And I understand that. No doubt. And I'm not, you know, I'm not minimizing the tragedy. I'm just saying that this is the, you know, this is the world that I'm inhabiting and, and it's the world I cover. And so I understand the perspective of this, but that doesn't mean it's not disappointing and, and in some ways heartbreaking for the athletes that are involved. Well, you articulated it very well, and I'll give a few more examples. They have postponed the Masters golf tournament. They may end up playing that at a later date, which is going to be a wild, unique situation to do it in October. They've postponed the Kentucky Derby, the most popular, prominent horse race in the world, to later in the year. 
we're not getting to postpone what we're going through right now. And I promise we're going to move on to happier subjects and happier topics. And that's the whole point with what we're going over, whether it's Cassius Winston getting another opportunity maybe to lead Michigan State to a Final Four, if not maybe a shot at the national title in a year where we're talking about life and death, where his brother took his own life and he has persevered on uh, to play this season. What a story that is. Again, back to Dayton with Obi Toppin, who is arguably a first-round, if not a top-10 NBA draft prospect, leading them. They haven't had a season like this at Dayton, Mike, in 40, 50 years. They would be talking about this season, particularly if they made a run in the NCAA tournament, for decades to come, and we don't get to see any of it. So... That's kind of where we are with what happened with 2020 and the and the season itself. So I want to turn this into a little bit of a positive and reminisce and have fun. And the guy that I'm talking to right now is an absolute gold mine of being able to recollect and be at and talk about all these different games in the modern era of college basketball that that we remember so well. If I say to you, first Thursday or Friday of the NCAA tournament, give me a memory or two of a game or an upset. Give me one, at least, that immediately comes to mind through your long career of covering and working or maybe just as a fan watching. Give me one that came to mind immediately when I asked that. Well, the one that comes to mind immediately is because, uh, and and I, I will explain that, I have covered 32 NCAA tournaments, and I have probably only been in a first-round game in about half, maybe less than half, uh, just various reasons. For, t- for nine years, I did Tournament Central on Sporting News Radio, where I went to the studio and we, had, we talked nonstop tournament for you know, basically from 12 noon uh, Eastern time to, to 1 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. And we watched all the games in the studio. And, and then uh, also uh, uh, the last, you know, last year I went to Sporting News headquarters and watched all the games with my colleagues who I never get to see. And early in the tournament, uh, early in my years, uh, if I covered a team that didn't make it, um, I stayed home and then went to the regionals. And so I probably have only been in the gym about half uh, of first-round sites. Maybe, you know, like I said, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But the one I covered uh, four, well, now five years ago in, in Louisville was UAB defeating uh, Iowa State. And that was, you know, that wasn't the most memorable of all the games, but I was there and watched it happen. And, and it was really cool to see how the, you know, what it, what it was like to be in that moment with those players. I mean, I had seen so many over the years. Uh, my friend Fran Fraschilla with Manhattan beating o- Oklahoma back in 95. Mm-hmm. Or Bryce Drew uh, and the and the Bryce Drew shot and all that. Most of that I experienced on television, but I was able to be in the locker room with UAB after the game, uh, and it was really cool to see how that just made those players feel like they had that win. What you know, it didn't matter that they were going to go out and get smoked on the weekend, which they did. Uh, that win made everything, and it was really interesting to see that up close and personal, and, and to be a part of that. All right, I want to give you a couple of stories. I'll go chronologically. So we've known each other a long, long time. Mike actually uh, began to befriend me and talk to me and come on local radio shows in the Tampa-St. Pete area with me longer ago than both uh, both uh, he and I want to admit back in the mid-1990s. Um, and so we've known each other a long time. But just before that, I was obviously 
in college. I'm dating myself here in the 1990 tournament, which is it's so much fun to go back for so many different reasons and look at all the crazy games in that tournament, last second shots for wins. But I gravitate to Loyola Marymount, and with good reason. The death of Hank Gathers, who had led the nation in scoring and rebounding the previous year, died on the court uh, the week before the tournament. They have the funeral. They have the memorial service. I remember being captivated, Mike, the word, the word that I will use, as a, as a college sophomore. I'm home for spring break. People can't fathom this right now. Not all the games were available in all of the markets all of the time for the NCAA tournament. You could not watch them all. You could not tape them all. They weren't all on. But in that case, because of the story with Gathers' death, CBS chose to put the Loyola Marymount Michigan, uh, New Mexico State game late night, Eastern and Central time after the local news, prime time in the West where everybody could see it. And I was captivated because I had watched that team for a couple of years. I have to confess right now, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up, Mike, while I'm talking about it 30, 30 years later. I have goosebumps on both of my forearms. I remember watching that just uh, amazed at how they were able, after the death of their teammate, to put together such a great performance in that game. Bo Kimball, four fouls in the first half. After his fallen friend, uh, Hank Gathers, died the week before, he's, he's maybe going to foul out of the game and they're going to lose this opening. But instead, they turn the tide on Lou Henson's New Mexico State team and basically run them to death, run them out of the gym, exhaust them in the second half of the game and beat them. And it would lead to other things, but I, I just I vividly remember that game in the middle of the night on CBS that so many people watched, and Kimball, obviously, the iconic moment shooting the left-hand free throws, as Gathers had begun to do that year. That one just sticks out. What, what sticks out to you about Loyola Marymount, that run, because you had begun covering and watching and being around the game around that time? What do you remember about all of that? Yeah, the prior year, I, had, uh, I was covering Duquesne at the time, But our Pitt beat writer, uh, a guy named Ron Cook, who's been a columnist at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette now for, gosh, 30 years, uh, probably 30 uh, years or nearly so. Uh, And he was our Pitt basketball writer during that year in 1989-90. And he left the paper to go to, uh, excuse me, 1988-99, he left the paper to go to the Post-Gazette. Obviously a good move because he got promoted and has been there ever since uh and and so we sort of like threw different people to fill in at at different times uh for the rest of that season and i was covering duquesne and very busy with the with that a lot of stories big stories on duquesne and but then they were done because they were bad and uh so i got to go to cover Pitt in the tournament in indianapolis and they played ball state with rick majeris as the coach in an 8-9 game, but prior to that, earlier in the day, uh, Loyola Marymount had played Louisville, and I think that was a 4-13 game, uh, four, four seed versus a 13, and it was the first time I'd gotten a chance to see that Loyola in, uh, uh, operation in person, and it was really something to see. Uh, uh, Louisville ended up winning the game. That was, that was when Hank was still with us, and he was playing in that game, and then a year later, like you said, uh, the tragedy that happened uh, with him in the in the conference tournament, and then Loyola Marymount choosing to play. I mean, remember, you lose a teammate. That's a, you know, that's a moment where you have to say, "Do we still want to do this?" Right. And they decided to do it to honor Hank. And then 
Uh, I don't know uh, how familiar people are with this little piece of history, but in, in, Hank was a lefty. And, and uh, so Bo and Hank had grown up together. They went to high school together. Uh, they went all the way across the uh, country to Southern California together and then transferred together. I mean, they were, they were about as close as you could be. Then they transferred together to Loyola Marymount and played the pre- prior year and then the entire regular season of 1989-90 together. And so uh, in honor of his, his dear friend, uh, Bo went up the, uh, to, to the line the first time he was fouled and <laughs> shot it lefty. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, Bo was a right-handed shooter, and he shot it lefty, and it went in. I mean, it was one of the great moments in NCAA tournament history when he shot that free throw. And a lot of people thought that was the end of the moment, really, because they, they lost one of the best players in the country. I mean, Hank was a superstar. He averaged over 30 points a game. Uh, and, it, and Loyola Marymount was a mid-major. You didn't have a lot of Hank Gathers sitting around. And yet, after, after that free throw, they went on, like you said, to win that game – by the way, that was Neil McCarthy that was a coach. Lou doesn't need any more losses on his NCAA <laughs> gotcha. tournament record than he's already got. Uh, it was Neil McCarthy when he was on a pretty good run uh, of, of regular season success, not as much uh, in the uh, tournament at that point. But um, uh, but he, he that was Neil McCarthy's team. I confused that was, myself the- because Lou took New Mexico State to the Final Four long before the Flying Illini the year before went to the Final Four yeah. in 89 at the Kingdome. Uh, so thank you for the correction. This is why I have you here. But yeah, after after Kimball made those free throws, he made the second one left-handed also. And I've joked on other shows, reminiscing 30 years later about this tournament in recent days and recent weeks, uh, Mike, that Quinn Buckner on the CBS call had the best line. He said, well, excuse me, I wasn't a very good free throw shooter, but that looked good from the time it left his hand. That's ex- his exact <laughs> quote. And he made them both. And New Mexico State could have gone and gotten on the bus after that happened. They were done. They yeah. were not. They were not and, winning that night. And, and, you know, as amazing as that was, it continued to escalate. What they did to Michigan was oh. just unbelievable. I mean, the, the Michigan was the defending national champions. And they blew them out of the gym. They scored 140 With four points. NBA first-round picks <laughs> on that Michigan team. It's not like it was just it's the team that was a defending national champs, but they didn't lose everybody. They had Ramil Robinson, Loy Vaught, Sean Higgins, and Terry Sean Mills, Higgins. who all got drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. And it was amazing to watch. It, it, I've described it, and I'd love to have your thought. We got a glimpse of the future of what basketball would become with the three-point shot. Yes, it was on warp speed, but we got a, a glimpse at what you could do with the three-pointer as a weapon that night. And Michigan wasn't ready for it, didn't didn't prepare for it, and they got run over because of it, Mike. Yeah, they surely did. I mean, I said 140 points. They scored 149. Yes. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And and you know, so and it it continued on from there all the way until they wound up facing uh UNLV in the in the Elite 8 and then they just ran out of gas and out of, you know, and and the talent that the that the Vegas team had just got them. But it was it was an amazing run and it was certainly one of the things that made the tournament as special as it is, uh, that that memory and that that reality at the time, I mean, people really really adopted that and and felt for those young men and to to be able to look back at that now 
30 years later, it's really a special moment in, in NCAA tournament basketball history. This guy's giving me some great time here. He's with me for a few more minutes. Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News at TSN Mike. Also the Big Ten Network's coverage of college basketball. He also did a, a bunch of great bracket work for Fox Sports uh, online, uh, giving his bracket analysis and what he thought might happen uh, for the tournament. So I'm plugging away. You can find all of that via social media at TSN Mike. He's in the Basketball Writers Hall of Fame for a reason. Um, and look, there's so many different ones that we remember on TV. All the 15s that have beaten twos over and over and over again, whether it's Dick Terrence, Richmond team, which I believe that was a 1990 upset also. Uh, that was 1991. 91. This is why I have you here. So it's the next year. But we've seen 15s over twos over and over again. We had two of them within about eight hours of each other in the 2013 tournament with uh, Missouri being beaten by Norfolk State and then C.J. McCollum and Lehigh stunning Duke, both as 15 seeds, both winning, uh, both winning convincingly. So we've seen shockers. We saw the shocker of, of, of a 16 beating a one a couple of years ago, Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC stunning the one seed Virginia. Of course, Virginia redeems themselves a year ago. We were all there, Mike in Minnesota as they win the national championship with a lot of the same players and the same coach the following year. So we've seen a lot. All right, so I want to relate one with you and get your thoughts on this because I I contend to this day, 12 years later, I saw something we're never going to see duplicated. It's tough to say never. we got to be careful of never and forever and words like I love you. we got to be careful of all of those things. But I'm, (laughs) I'm saying never. Uh, I sat in the downtown arena in Tampa that's now known as the Amelie Arena, the home of the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team, and I watched as that year the NCAA tournament didn't put a one seed or a two seed into the pod, into the four games. On the opening Thursday of the tournament, they put instead two fours and two fives, obviously in different brackets, into that tournament. Uh, and then all of the double-digit seeds, all of the 12 and 13 seeds won one right after another with the University of San Diego, not not the San Diego State Aztecs, not the San Diego Chargers or the San Diego Padres, the USD Toreros upsetting UConn on a last-second shot in overtime. The game went to overtime, and then they won on a last-second shot. Uh, Western Kentucky, Mike, as a 12 seed beat Drake. Ty Rogers was right in front of me on on press row, courtside, downtown Tampa, making about a 35-foot three-point shot right in front of me for the win with a 12 beating a 5. That night, Kenny Hansbro and Siena as a 13 seed blew out uh, Vanderbilt out of the SEC as a four seed, and then Scotty Reynolds and Villanova as a 12 seed defeated Clemson that night. I was in the arena for 12 hours, really probably 10, of amazing basketball where uh, that that will not be duplicated. There will not be three or, or four 12s and 13s that win in the same building on the same day. Again, it was an incredible opening day. I was privileged to sit there and watch of it. And, and I and I sat there maybe a week later and still said, and maybe even I still say it occasionally, did that really happen? That all, It did. <laughs> all of those upsets happened in one building in one day. Welcome to March and the first round of the tournament, Mike. Yeah, you know, uh, that, that was the thing of was, it wasn't just that they were the upsets. I mean, some of those games were so great. The Drake Western Kentucky game was one of the great NCAA tournament games. It was just fabulous up and down. The, the final score was one Oh one ninety nine, And that play, you know, I, so 
I remember that play so well. And I knew right away when, what was it? Okay, so that was 2008. So six, uh, eight years later, uh, then you have Villanova. And I wonder, you know, I never asked Jay this. But, I mean, he would have been there. Now, you know, I don't know if he'd have been sitting out in the crowd. But he was in the building when Western Kentucky ran the play. Tyrone Brazelton advanced the ball quickly. Ty Rogers trailing behind him. Tyrone gets it to the, to, the, to the right wing, turns and ties right behind him. It's about 25 feet, 30 feet away. It's, it was a pretty deep shot. And Ty, who was a great shooter, uh, threw it right in. And that, and that won the game. And that's the exact same play that, Vill- that Villanova ran against North Carolina in a tie game at the end of the 2016 championship game. Only this time it was Ryan Archidiacono uh, pitching it back to Chris Jenkins. And I think they used Chris not so much because he was the best shooter they had, but because he was a, a really good shooter that they expected that uh, – Bryce Johnson would run to the rim and defend the rim, and so they thought that he might be open. And that's why they had him trail up, because there wouldn't be anybody available to, to, to guard him. That Bryce Johnson, who was guarding the power forward, ran to the rim as expected and as he should, because it was a tie game. Remember, he's got to protect against a layup, and he's at the rim. And meanwhile, there's Jenkins out uh, beyond the three-point line and that little pitch play and it worked perfectly Mm-mm-mm. so I, I never asked jay whether that's where he got it or or not but uh it worked it worked in 20 2008 and it worked in 20 uh, 2016 and the results were amazing and you know like you said it was it, what you saw was something you'll rarely see if if you know, I, I can't say never, ever, because I used to say never, ever about a 16 over a 1. I got <laughs> to the point where I was, I was convinced that one of the reasons why I thought it wouldn't happen was because, not you know, the one seeds in, in the day, you know, in the 80s and 90s were really talented. I mean, Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen and all that. But they, there were still some close calls, and I thought one of the reasons for that then was that the committee didn't always seed – the low seeds as well as they should have. They didn't, you know, they don't, they didn't have as many analytical tools then as they do now. And so I thought that the bottom of the field was a little more haphazard back then. And they were more prone to make the kind of mistake that would put an elite team in with, uh, you know, an elite mid-major team in with a, a you know, maybe a, a one seed that could be taken down. Because back then we saw it happen a lot of times, and then as we got toward the 2000s, we almost never saw anything even hardly close. And so the I I, I really didn't expect what happened with UMBC. Uh, that, so that you know I look at that as you know uh, something I said would never happen. So four four happenings in one site um, <laughs> is a lot is a lot harder. But, you know, I'm You're not, not going to go along with again. my never. You're not going along with my I'm never. I'm not going to say that because, I, like I said, I was saying never about 16. I understand. One. I'd gotten to the, I hey, was absolutely. Let me give you let me give you another it. stat because I looked all of this up. In addition to uh, to my never, I can add to it that those two last second shots by San Diego and by Western Kentucky were not in tie games. They were both down by one. They lose yeah. if it doesn't go in. So I add that to the never. And how about that same year? Because I looked in the other four matchups of four versus thirteen or five versus twelve. 
the higher-seeded team, the four of the five, all won by at least 11 points, and three of them won by at least 19 points, just to give you an idea (laughs) of how unusual it was to have an upset or two, much less four of them in those games. I still remember this. I'm just, I'm just uh, going on a riff here about remember sitting there uh, courtside. Well, there's, there's two or three things that I remember vividly. Mark Wise, who you know and I know, and we've had dinner together. Mark's worked oh, yeah. with me as an analyst. Mark and I were on Sirius XM on the live call the previous week of the SEC tournament in Atlanta where the tornado came through, and we were live on the air when that happened. We had oh, survived wow. that. And this is now the following week. This is now a week later. And we did the game when they moved it to Georgia Tech, the Georgia-Kentucky game. And by the way, Zach Swansea, the player for Georgia, scored on a very similar drive, penetrate, and flip it to the guy behind you for a right-wing shot that Ty Rogers would score on. If you go back and look at that game against uh, Kentucky, that's what they scored on as well. All right, so I remember that we had almost been in a tornado, and my wife was pregnant for five months with our twin daughters in March of 08, and I was excused to go to the arena while she's pregnant with twins to watch, and this is what I'm getting to watch. So these are the memories uh, that we... That and one more fun one. I'm sitting at one point on, on Thursday at lunchtime, kind of the time that Mike and I are talking right now for the first day of the NCAA tournament, and the San Diego radio guys are next to me on the front row of the media thing, they are doing their pregame for the game with UConn coming up. It was the first game in the arena, and they're doing it, uh, Mike, during morning drive back in San Diego. On their <laughs> station, there are people listening at 8.30 Pacific time to the pregame show, to the coach interview, et cetera, et cetera, and it's 8.30 in the morning, and they're in traffic, and the first half of the game is morning drive while they're in traffic in San Diego, and the Toreros go on to win the game as part of 213 and two twelves winning the tournaments. And I keep saying this everywhere. I'll say it again right here. Go back and relive this stuff on YouTube. It's available on YouTube. Go search for the games. Watch the finishes. Watch the Ty Rogers shot. Dijon Johnson is his name, or Dijon Johnson, however you pronounce it. I believe it was Dijon Johnson of, uh, of San Diego won the UConn game in the overtime with a second left. Uh, go back and relive. Go back and relive Loyola Marymount in that 1990 tournament, or as as Mike is telling you about uh, famous first round games: Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC beating uh, Virginia in that opening round, or Princeton almost beating Georgetown in that opening round. They're all there. Funny this that what, you should say yeah. that, TJ, because one of the things that I decided to do for this vacant time is go back and watch the games I missed. See, because one of the things that happens when you cover the tournament. Is and, and for a lot of people, it doesn't matter. But for me, I'm I, I'm absolutely addicted to this thing. So I got to see as much as I can see. But if I'm in a building, you know, I I will have other games on, like my computer laptop or something like that, while I'm at courtside, and I'll glance over. And and if the game in front of me is boring and the game on the TV, uh, you know, the computer is great, I might even, you know, switch my attention. But for the most part, you miss games that you're not covering you're the, the games that you're, you know, that, that you're at are taking precedence cause that's the job. And so I, I decided to go back and look at games that I missed for various reasons through the tournament, through the various stages of the tournament. So one of the, one of the pieces that I have up on sportingnews.com currently is I went back yesterday and I watched the Georgetown Princeton game. Mm. I had never seen it. I had only ever seen the final play or two. And the reason was really stupid, and it taught me a lesson that I'll, I never forgot. 
I went to dinner with some some fellow sports writers, and and we didn't have to eat. You know, there wasn't at a sports bar. I don't think there was a Buffalo Wild Wings in in downtown uh, <laughs> Indy at that point. And we just went to dinner, and then we came out, and I like me maybe we passed through the bar or something because I remember like we were standing there, and like oh my God, Georgetown's you know in a game, you know, and so I never saw that, so I went back and watched it. And it was really cool. I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a great replacement for what we're missing now, but it was really cool to watch it. And and I knew the outcome, and I'm watching, and it still feels a little bit like, oh man, they could do this. And they, obviously, it didn't work out, but it was amazing to see how close that Princeton team came to beating Georgetown. The difference in the game. Then they were at a 45 second clock, and the way they played. And it was, and, and I, you know, like I said, it's not going to replace what we would have seen because sports are about the unknown and the, and the, the, that's, that's what makes sports the greatest reality TV because the stuff you see on The Bachelor is all nonsense, but the stuff you see in the NCAA <laughs> tournament is real. You know, it's, it's real and it's awesome. And so it, it like, it doesn't take the place of it, but it, uh, it is cool to go back and relive it that way. Or, or as I said, in my case, live it that way. And, and I'm going to do one of those for each round of the tournament all the way up through the final four and of course i have i've seen every final four since i was a kid but i'm going to use the the last uh ones that i wasn't in the building for and uh, in 1989 i i the semifinal, i will use the michigan uh illinois game i've been sitting next to steven bardo on tv now for five or six years and i and his uh his trip to Seattle was one of the last ones I missed. And then the last final I was not in the building for was Michigan versus North Carolina in 93, the Chris Weber timeout game. Right. I was, I was between, I wasn't between jobs. I had just started in Memphis. Uh, just, just had joined the commercial appeal. My paper in Pittsburgh had died and I moved to, to Memphis and obviously being on the job there for like six weeks, it wasn't fair for me to be the person who went to the final four. Uh, the person who covered the Tigers that year, Lynn Zinser went and deservedly so. But I went down for the semis, uh, watched in the, in the stands and then drove home back to Memphis. And that was the last time I watched the championship game on TV. So I'll do that one for the final game uh, and, and rewatch it. that one. By the way, you got to Memphis right after I left, and no Lynn Zinzer from back in the in the early nineties, and uh, and wow, uh, we've intersected for a lot of different ways. Again, read Mike's stuff <laughs> at SportingNews.com. He's tweeted out his articles too, whether it's the ten things that he would miss about this year's tournament or uh, or reminiscing about some of these other games. He's tweeting them out at TSN Mike. Worth the read from the Hall of Famer. Uh, by the way, you just jogged me on something, and I looked while you were talking. We were in the arena for so long that day in downtown Tampa in 2008. I still remember this. You're going to love this. I promise you're going to smile. That we were in the arena in the afternoon as Davidson was upsetting Mark uh, Fuse Gonzaga team, a 10 seed beating a 7 seed uh, in a right. game that was going on in Raleigh. And I remember one of the media members, I don't know who it was, was saying, who is this Stephen Curry guy? And I, and I said, he was a freshman, and I said, I know enough to know from having watched them, his name is Stephen Curry, and that's Del Curry's son, and he can shoot the three. And boy, oh boy, did we find out later in that tournament and now throughout his entire pro career, 
can Stephen Curry or Steph Curry shoot the three? But I remember saying that in the you just jogged me that day in Tampa when all the 13s and the 12s were winning. Steph Curry, Stephen Curry was doing his thing against Gonzaga. The couple nights later, he was doing it against Georgetown, beating a two seed. He was gunslinging against Davidson. He very yep. nearly beat Kansas uh, with a great second half of three point shooting as well before Kansas hung on by two and went on to beat Memphis. Here we go again in the overtime in the Alamo Dome. But there you go. Who is this Stephen Curry, Mike? I know enough to know oh, is it is great. Stephen Curry, yeah. and that's Del Curry's yeah. son. So these are the memories we have. Hey, thank you for reminiscing. Uh, again, find this man at SportingNews.com, at TSN Mike on social media. He's a treat. He's a Hall of Famer. I will miss seeing you at the Final Four, but pledge to me that like 12 months from now, we get to do this again, and I'll buy you a meal again, because I love doing that, and we'll reminisce some more. I'll talk to you between now and then, but... It's a date, right? For like twelve months from Absolutely. now, we're going to get to do this again, and let's uh, let's I know enjoy. The spots, it. man, I will book the reservation <laughs> on Open Table now. I love it. I love it. For here in Indy, and and you and me and Wise and oh, Ari can get together we gotta, again. We got to we got to do it. Awesome. We got to do it. That was one of that's one of my favorite Final Four memories is having dinner with you guys uh, on that Thursday <laughs> night in San Antonio. Oh. We had a blast. Oh, we always and I, do. And, and I can tell and I can tell Wise again why he's wrong about it. Exactly. Uh, expanded. Beyond. Yeah. Speaking of expanded, one last thing I'd like to yeah, say. True. I, I did a long piece that, that was a lot of fun on the 1985 expansion. The, 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 the expansion of 64 teams that made the tournament what it is today. And I, and I did it through the eyes of six, six, seven, eight guys that were all involved in that first tournament in different ways. And I really, really proud of it. It took, you know, it was a lot of work and it's a, it's a long read that I feared people wouldn't have time to read uh, back when I, you know, back when we thought there were going to be uh, 67 games in the next uh, three weeks. But now there aren't any. So no excuses for not sitting down and reading it. It certainly is something that really drives home what a wonderful event that the, the NCAA tournament is. Yeah, people can't fathom that it used to be 48 teams with buys. Before that, it was also 32 teams, and you only yes. had to win four games. It was not always 64, much less the 68. So yes, read up at SportingNews.com about that from the 1985 uh, piece. Uh, and that jogs me, too, to my Memphis State Tigers winning all those cardiac games when I was a teenager to get to the Final Four, including beating Oklahoma in the regional final, got to the Final Four with the three Big East teams, and eventually we got the Villanova perfect game against Georgetown for the national title that year. We can go back and relive all of it and reminisce through what's online, through YouTube, etc. I look forward to it. Mike, what a treat to have you here on College Basketball Coast to Coast. Thank you for giving me the time with this. I promise uh, there will be better days ahead everything will resume we'll come back around and we'll be talking about actual games again uh thank you for helping us all get through what we have right now we appreciate it thanks dj still to come straight ahead here on the podcast to sean tate out of atlanta mr tate's takes will be here to talk about his fond memories of the first round of the tournament and the big upsets etc look forward to talking with him and then matt zimmick will close the podcast he has tremendous insight as well on the sport of college basketball uh he will be talking about first rounds of yesteryear on thursday and friday and and the television coverage isn't uh, in the past, what it is now with all the standalone games and all of the different internet coverage, etc. Uh, so Matt will have insight on all of that. Reminder, subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast. 
Spreaker, wherever you find podcasts, however you found this one on a social media link or wherever you saw it, uh, subscribe to it. It'll come automatically to you. And we will be back. I pledge this to you later in March to talk much more about the NCAA tournament, Sweet 16, Elite 8. This is almost like group therapy, like therapeutic, as you heard Mike DeCourcy talking there from the Sporting News about this. We're devoid of any of the games, any of the magic, the upsets, the crescendo building to the Final Four. We don't have any of it. But uh, we do have our memories. We do have the opportunity to look back on previous tournaments, maybe even as recently as uh, the last few years as you've been hearing us talk about, but also go back into the the early 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, or maybe even back to the the 70s when the games went all the time on TV. You only got a rare few games that were on here and there. So anyway, subscribe to the podcast. It'll come automatically to you. Let's get back to the guest. Let's get back to the reminiscing. I love it here on College Basketball Coast to Coast. One of the guys helping me out. I pledged to bring him back on. So here we are on what is supposed to be like Christmas Day times two on Thursday and Friday without first round games, without the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. So he's back. He's based in Atlanta with the all sports station, the terrestrial radio station, 92.9 The Game FM uh, in Atlanta. He is Deshaun Tate back on college basketball coast to coast all right first of all how are things going we're all we're all isolated we're all social distancing or we should be we don't have the march hoops like we we talked about earlier in the week how are you you holding up you all right there's a little group therapy for all of us right now yeah thanks for having me back on uh on coast to coast man i appreciate it and you know it's a little it's a little wacky it's a little rocky but you know what being closed in to my home i guess quarantining is what they're calling it nowadays whatnot uh, just sitting around on a day like this is something I would have been doing anyway. Every year, the very first two days of the tournament, I'm always just sitting at home, lounging in my PJs a little bit, got my extra large pizza with extra cheese. It's a traditional, <laughs> it's an annual traditional thing. So, uh, this is probably what I would have been doing anyways, except for watching a ton more basketball. But I've gone back and been looking at some of my Big East conference tournament, the six overtime with, uh, UConn and Syracuse, yeah. just kind of going back and I guess reminiscing a little bit. Well, that's what we have to hang on to because right now we don't have games and it's unusual. And I know I'm older than you. I keep I keep citing this. Uh, there are a lot of us who, for a lot longer, have been used to the first and second day of the NCAA tournament. Really, since as Mike DeCourcy was talking about there in the last segment, they expanded the field to 64 teams in 1985, thus making the first two days, Thursday and Friday, what they are, which is 32 games involving 64 teams. So uh, you start at noon Eastern time and you roll well past midnight Eastern time with those 16 games each day. So it is it is a blur. It is wild. There are upsets. There are storylines. There are great players putting on great performances, some of them being upset and being sent home. Uh, and, and, and about the time you start to digest this game over here, you're now over to this game over here and watching that and watching the next one. So we're having to do without. We're making do with, with what we can. Uh, I'll ask you the same question that I asked Mike, Deshaun. When I say to you, opening day of the tournament, either Thursday or Friday, opening round upset, give me one or maybe give me two that comes to mind. What's freshest, what's most important, most relevant to you when I say opening round upset NCAA tournament? Yeah, just just the thought of everything that you just explained, man. I, I feel like all the toilet paper I ran out to go get, I've used it already to wipe away all my tears, but... <laughs> 
I'll tell you this much, though, TJ, that when I think about it, it takes me back to some of the most memorable games. Obviously, I didn't get the opportunity to see them in person, but uh, I think everybody can remember where they were when we saw UMBC, first time ever, 16 seed to beat a one uh, over, over Virginia just two years ago, not that far removed from it. Uh, and not just beat them by, you know, it wasn't a buzzer beater or anything like that. It wasn't a tight game that went down to the wire or anything. I mean, that was pretty much a, a blowout. You know, we saw UMBC go up by about 20 points. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, I, I was I was definitely not nodding off, but some other people were nodding off around me. And I'm like, hey, you need to wake up. You need to come and see this. Leave me alone. I'm sleeping. No, this is history right here that we're witnessing. <laughs> right. You, you, everybody got to wake up. The whole neighborhood. So I do remember that game. Obviously, that one sticks out like a sore thumb to me. And, of course, one that. Well, OK, is, uh, so before uh, we me. before we move to another okay. one, let's talk about that okay. one for the audience, because, again, it's sure. fresh. It's only a couple of years ago. But what a lot of people mm-hmm. don't remember is Virginia was in control. It was a low scoring first half, typical of how they played. They were winning the game at halftime it's not as if tied at 21 well tied at 21 but they were winning the game in the first half it's not as if umbc had been making big shot after big shot in the first half it was just all of a sudden in about deshaun about an eight minute span where they seemed like they did everything right made every big three you looked up and suddenly they're up by 15, they're up by 18, and you're going just like you said, go wake everybody up. Call the relatives, call the friends, call the enemies, text somebody, tweet at somebody. This is happening. This is really about to happen. They are going to put down a number one seed on the opening night, and it did happen. Yeah, it was almost as if you were just kind of sitting back and waiting for Virginia to kind of make that run. And everybody knows about their style in terms of, you know, if they find a way to kind of get down by quite a few, certainly within double digits, that's going to be really hard for them to come back because of, you know, the stifling defense and the style that they play with uh, and within that system. And, and, and just, you know, at some point you're like, you know what, they're going to make a run and just a cl- just as, as the game continued to just uh, co- got to a point where it was concluding, it became more evident that, you know what, we're witnessing history. They're not coming back. That's just the reality of it. So, I mean, that that was obviously a big, huge part of it. And, and Virginia couldn't hit shots, you know, in, in, in the second half. And I know a lot of people are automatically going to go to, you know, how a, a top four uh, player that was picked in the NBA draft the, the, the following year after they won a national championship, obviously. Uh, DeAndre Hunter didn't play in that particular game because right. he was out for the remainder of the season with an injury. But let me tell you something. There was no way that even with DeAndre Hunter, I'm a believer, there was no way that they were going to be able to storm back and come back and win. I mean, UMBC was just really on a mission. And that's the part of March Madness that we all are kind of missing right now because we embrace it the way that we do. Well, and they they began to believe. I talked so many times about belief, and that Friday night in Charlotte, you could tell. Uh, and again, you can go back and re- relive these uh, through websites, through YouTube. You can watch that second half as they began to believe the shots were going down. The big crew on CBS of Jim Nance, Bill Raftery, and uh, Grant Hill were doing the game, and they were as shocked as anybody uh, that that was unfolding, and it ended up being a 20-point win. All right, without looking, I'm just wondering if Mr. Tate's take remembers what happened to UMBC as the 16 seed in the next game. What happened to them? 
Uh, who'd they play? Do you remember off the top of your head? I'm actually looking at it, but this is why I love you. Do you remember what happened in the next game? Any idea? I want to say they got bounced pretty good by Kansas State. Are you looking at something? I can't see you. Did you I just know you that I'm, right I'm, off the top of your head? <laughs> this is what I do. Let me tell you something. I tell you all the time, CJ. I'm applauding. No I'm applauding. Else. I'm in the background <laughs> applauding. Very nice. I have no earthly idea as to exactly what it is else that I'm here on this planet for, but for that one, I'm pretty good at this March Madness stuff. Well, and Kansas State was the nine seed, and they end up playing a 16 to go to the Sweet 16 and beat them, and then they end up playing Kentucky as the five. A nine plays a five, and so you were there in Atlanta to watch that one. So the UMBC run was was one game, and then K State knocked them out. So it was only that one that one magical night, and then Kansas State playing Kentucky as a five seed, uh, and the other in part Catlana. in Catlana, which you've talked about on our previous show on our Sunday night show there, and then Loyola Chicago had pulled several upsets, had beaten Miami on the last second shot, the 11 over the 6, had beaten Tennessee by 1. Tennessee missed the last second shot that could have won the game. Then they beat Nevada. How about that That regional on the second weekend had a 9 Kansas State, a 5 Kentucky, an 11 uh, Loyola Chicago, a 7 Nevada. Uh, not exactly what we were thinking with teams like Virginia and Arizona and Cincinnati and Tennessee in the bracket. And and none of them got to the Sweet 16 round on that Friday night. This is why we love the first weekend so much with all of those upsets because Buffalo takes down Arizona, uh, Georgia State, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nevada takes down Cincinnati two years ago by two, Tennessee taken out by Loyola of Chicago. This is why we love March. It is, it is, it is. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And actually, I even went to the Kansas State locker room after they beat Nevada uh, and, 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 and posted something on my social media just recently, just a couple minutes ago, so you can go on at Tate's Take Hoops, T-A-T-E-S-T-A-K-E-H-O-O-P-S, and posted what that locker room celebration looked like at that time. And I've even been posting stuff all day uh, uh, in regards to after Kansas State lost to Loyola Chicago and went on to the Final Four at their locker room and that whole celebration on the floor of the whole nine. It was awesome. It was outstanding. My first time being able to cover a uh, a, a regional Sweet 16 semifinal game and then a regional final to go on to the Final Four. And of all those teams between, you know, Villanova and Michigan and Kansas, Loyola is the one that I had the opportunity to uh, cover. And, and just, the, just the thought, you know, of, of it all that, you know, if I would have told you that we were going to see Nevada uh, uh, as well as our Kansas State, Kentucky, and Loyola – everybody was saying this is Kentucky's to win. There's no way that they're not going. And I think that may have been the most difficult region of the entire bracket. And then to look at it, uh, Kentucky looked like they were just going to just run away with it and couldn't even get past the Sweet 16 in Atlanta. They call it Catlanta. It was crazy. And I was like, you know what, this right here, everybody was so shocked. Of course I was too, but this is why they call it March Madness because it's a a one-and-done game scenario. And if you don't come and bring it, and that particular game each night, then you you could be going home early. And unfortunately for Kentucky, they didn't have a very far 
far away to travel to get back home to Lexington. That is very true. And again, for Loyola Chicago, just that year, they won over Miami. It was an afternoon game. It was a Thursday afternoon game in Dallas on a three-point shot trailing by one. Hit a three-pointer to win or else there is no storied run to the Final Four. They obviously don't play and beat Tennessee. They don't play and beat Nevada. They don't play and beat Kansas State. This is how fragile it was always. It always has been and can always be on the opening uh, two days, the Thursday and Friday of the NCAA tournament. All right, so I stopped you on that one on UMBC. Give me another one, Deshaun Tate, that comes to mind for you immediately when I say first uh, the day, first round of the tournament, Thursday or Friday. What's another one that jumps out to you? Well, this one hits a little bit more closer to home, uh, obviously with my ties to the state of Michigan and being a big Michigan State guy. And everybody knows which way I'm going to go with it. 2016, <laughs> the two seed versus the 15. And I try my best, trust me. I try my best. You guys don't understand how much it's taking to pull, me, pull this out of me. I'm, I'm going to need more toilet paper to wipe more tears here in a second. But when Michigan State falls... But you should tell them why. Before you talk about Michigan State losing to Middle Tennessee, and then I've got stories, you should tell them why this is so crushing that you have to bring this up from four years ago. Well, it was my very first opportunity that I would have to go onto television, something that you've been dreaming about for years, to have the opportunity to do and go on TV as as a college basketball expert and analyst to be able to break down these brackets since I was pretty much almost in elementary school at this point, since age 10, middle school, and, and, and I finally get my opportunity. And there's no way that Michigan State, you can't tell me any different. Forget about just Michigan State going on to play in the second weekend or the Final Four. I picked them to win my national championship. I said it boldly, in fact. Uh, and, and I wasn't the only one. Michigan State was very deserving that year to be a number one seed. I think majority of the country, at least I like to think of the people that I spoke with, even some of the analysts on TV for ESPN and some of the other networks, were picking Michigan State and thought it was crazy how they didn't get a one seed. They got a two seed to be able to stay closer to home, which in this same situation for this year, we like to think is maybe San Diego State, who's in contention for a one seed, but looking right on the outside of that at this point going into the tournament this year, maybe getting a two seed and staying on the West Coast and maybe favored them a little bit. So it had that similar feel or vibe or energy that it did for Michigan State that same year uh, and then ended up losing in the first round. And when I say that I had the egg all Mm. over my face, I mean, I remember people from work checking up on me, making sure I didn't, you know, jump off the ledge. Deshaun, come back in. Deshaun, come back in the window. (laughs) It's okay. Let me tell you something. Literally creating uh, 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 images of me that I've done in the past uh, at 92.9 the game, at, at work and doing other things, and completely took my face off and replaced it with the Jordan crying face. I mean, there was everything all across the board that you can think of, and I was talking a little bit more trash than everybody. And that one right there, that was the one that probably had to humble me. Yeah, Kermit Davis and Middle Tennessee State pulled upsets two years in a row, by the way, of Big Ten teams in the NCAA tournament. But that was the first one as a 15 seed beating Michigan State 
Okay, you don't know this. We did not rehearse this, right? You don't have any idea that I'm about to bring this up, right? You don't know what okay. I'm about to say, right? Correct? Verify that Absolutely for the college not. basketball coast-to-coast <laughs> audience. Absolutely not. My hand my was feet. up. My hand was up because I had picked Michigan State on this very show on 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 and on and on for days. I had picked <laughs> Michigan State to come out of that bracket, out of that Midwest bracket, uh, with the regional final in Chicago uh, to defeat Virginia and go to the final four. And I picked them as my national champion. And I had touted Tom Izzo and that team. Okay, it gets better. It gets better. Who gets married in March while the NCAA tournament is going on to begin with? Much less, who gets married on a Friday afternoon of the NCAA tournament? Well, one of my work friends, broadcast work friends, uh, who will probably end up hearing this podcast at some point. He knows who he is, his wife. They made these plans in and around the the date of that game because that's the date they met 10 years earlier. So they wanted to get married wow. on that day, Deshaun. So we are at their 5 o'clock wedding at the beach out at St. Petersburg uh, beach. We're out at the beach, a beach wedding spring break weekend. We're out at the beach. And I am I am riding in the car. I am driving. I'm listening to the score on the radio. I'm going, this is not good. We go to the wedding. We're at the wedding. I don't have my phone out. I have no idea. We're at their wedding reception when I finally get the phone back out. And everybody's coming over to me going, hey, have you seen the scores? Have you seen that Michigan State lost? And I'm going, you've got to, just like everybody else, just like you, you've got to be kidding me. So I'm at a Friday afternoon wedding during March Madness when I found out my bracket is totally blown up on the Friday afternoon round one because I had Michigan State. Uh, I think I just forgave Tom Izzo and the Spartans about 15 minutes ago for that. But anyway, there's a story for you. You were where you were. I was at a wedding in in St. Pete Beach, Florida when the Spartans went down that day. The things we remember, the places we were. There's where I was when, when that went down that year. And that's a litany of 15s beating twos uh, throughout uh, the history of the NCAA tournament. We've seen it over and over again. I made, I made reference with uh, Mike DeCourcy before you came on, Deshaun, that uh, we saw Norfolk State knock off Missouri. That mm-hmm. Missouri, Missouri team, Missouri had won the Big 12 championship game, the Big 12 tournament championship game over Kansas uh, like five days before and we're riding high, and we're headed to the SEC the next year because the crowd was chanting in the arena, SEC, SEC. Remember all the Missouri fans? And then, and then they Still go, and, and then they go and lose to Norfolk State, a 15 seed on that afternoon. And about seven or eight hours later, Duke loses to Lehigh and CJ McCollum bombing in shots. We saw two 15s win within about six eight hours of each other so so 15s have done this to twos whether you're talking about hampton beating iowa state and santa clara upsetting arizona with steve nash i mean you can go all around all of these 15 seeds that have pulled uh upsets it's a it's amazing that is part just give me a follow-up comment that's part of what thursday and friday are about you know these lower seeded teams, even teams that have a 13 or a 14 or a 15 next to their name, they're going to be dangerous at times in these games, Deshaun. It is, you know, and, and you know, that's, like I said, that's the crazy part about, about March Madness is it's almost, it's, sometimes it's not just about, you know, filling out the bracket sometimes or, or just 
knowing teams that makes it complicated. Sometimes the more you know <laughs> makes it really kind of difficult to call it, you know, pick, pick some of these teams on your bracket because you're so close to it. And, and you're thinking, well, there's no way that this Norfolk team, you know, Norfolk State team with Kyle Quinn or whomever, you know, can beat this Missouri team or some of these, you know, a lot of these programs you've never heard of in your life. And that's how I just eventually started to learn. I really feel like this year, and I don't assume that they're going to get a 15 seed by any means, but, you know, Belmont could have gotten a 15 seed this year. I mean, there was a time when they were a really low seed and obviously uh, Duke was a high seed and they took them all the way down to the wire one year. I think it may have gone overtime or something. I can't remember, but they're always a really tough uh, uh, out as well. So you learn a little bit. And of course the the weird and wacky part is that I probably watch more college basketball than anybody under the sun, but then you have people just randomly who never really watch a game throughout the season, always doing something else when games are on. And I'm just got my eyes glued to it the whole season and they're picking colors or all birds or just yep. favorite vacation. The, you know, the vacation secretary in the office, the secretary <laughs> in the office who hasn't watched a game and you come off the first mm-hmm. weekend and she is winning or the guy in your office that doesn't care, that just is going mm-hmm. by nicknames and colors. I'll give you another fun one. You just jogged my memory. So we had twin girls in 2008 so the 2009 mm. tournament eventually won by North Carolina. Speaking of Michigan. Thanks for the reminder, by the way. Yeah, beating uh, Michigan State <laughs> in the Motor City, in I believe. In Detroit at Ford Field. <laughs> so that year, the twins, my twins are running around right now because of the coronavirus scare in the house. They're getting stir-crazy. They're getting big. Deshaun, they're in the sixth grade. They're, they're now going to be 12 later this summer. But at that time, they were nine months old. They were nine-month-olds. They could barely, they could not walk. They could sit up. So what we did, my wife filled out a bracket. I filled out a bracket. My father filled out a bracket. And we had the twins fill out a bracket. And we put different color little plastic blocks on the floor for the two schools. And whichever twin would go over to a colored block first and pick it up or touch it or play with it, that's what we would pick for them. I kid you not, they literally, out of the out of the first weekend where you have the 47 games played, they got like 26 or 27 of them right. They, were, they did very well on just wow. picking colors of blocks on games. So that's uh, to your point on we, we study this stuff, we analyze it, we watch the games for hours and hours and hours, and we think we know. And then they play the games, and we don't know. Uh, all right, do you have another yeah, story? You're gonna yeah, go ahead. Them, you're going to need them, TJ, to start picking your numbers when it comes to the Mega Millions in a minute. Yeah, maybe, for lotteries and for other things. But it was just hilarious that they picked with blocks and were doing exceptionally well on being able to pick the games. All right, do you have another story? Because I've got one more on a first-round game while we talk with Deshaun Tate. Tate's Take Hoops uh, on Twitter, T-A-T-E-S-T-A-T-E. H-O-O-P-S, Tate's Take Hoops. Love Deshaun's insight with Tate's Take. He's with the FM All Sports Station 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. Uh, again, the Final Four was to have been Atlanta. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you just feel bad at every turn with every phrase, but the Final Four was to have come to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I would still love to know. I, I would believe they're going to keep the rotation they're going to be, uh, uh, have and be in Indianapolis next year, be in Indy uh, with the NCAA's base, but I wonder how soon they will come back around to Mercedes-Benz Stadium again if they can. Um, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see in the rotation. But for yeah. right now, we don't know. I don't. You may have more insight on that right now. 
Yeah, I don't, but you know what? That would be uh, really interesting and obviously really good for me because I get to keep a little bit of money in my pocket instead of traveling <laughs> all over the place. But outside of that, um, you know, yeah, they, they typically do Indianapolis about every five years. Right. So, I mean, what just a really good centralized location. Obviously, everybody knows that, you know, Indiana being a state, everybody, you grew up in Indiana, everybody has a basketball goal in their driveway. And so, you know, I, I just think that, that that's obviously a really, really good place to have it. Um, you know, where everything is literally right there. And not to say anything about some of the other places, but Atlanta, San Antonio, some of these places are really good because you have that, opportun- that opportunity um, to, you know, have the, the, the coaches, basketball clinics, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the fanfare and everything else like that all around in one area versus, you know, having to drive here and there all over the place. Oh, to, my uh, Lord. Exactly. To, well, yeah, yeah. like exactly. when we, we met, you and I met well, along with Ari Russell and Mark Wise, we met in Arizona, which to your point, everything was in downtown Phoenix and in and around downtown Phoenix. Yet the basketball was at the Cardinals football stadium in Glendale, which you literally, Deshaun, we can't convey this enough to the audience, leave civilization in Phoenix and head (laughs) through the desert to Glendale to the UFO that's in the middle of of the desert, the big football stadium, what's now... What is it now? Uh, I think it's State Farm Stadium now. I think they redid it. It was University of Phoenix Stadium, but they got a new sponsor. The big, you know, 90, 80,000 seat football stadium is where that Final Four was being held. And so you reference Indianapolis. Once you've been to Indianapolis, where everybody stays downtown and everybody can walk to everything, can walk to Lucas Oil Stadium, can walk to the convention center for the interviews or the fan fest. It's not the same as getting in in buses and vehicles and driving thirty or forty minutes away to to go and and be at the That's games. Right. Just as a uh, a reference. All right, so I have another memory to share that I'd love to give your reaction to. Do you have any other first round memories that you wanted to share? Since we got you on here, another one that stands out. Anything else at the moment, or do you want me to go next? What do you want to do? Yeah, I'm going to let you go next because I probably have way too many and then we'd be on here forever. (laughs) Let me tell you another story. So this is 1993 now, the first round of the NCAA tournament that year at one regional site at the old Orlando Arena, downtown Orlando, the home, the original home of the Orlando Magic. And my Memphis State Tigers. All right, so you talk about crushing losses with your Michigan State Spartans because you're from Michigan and Sparty is your is your team and your school. So I'm a Memphis guy. I'm a Memphis State guy through and through. I have recently graduated in 1992. Again, I'm giving away my age from Memphis State. I'm now doing five-day-a-week radio in Tampa, an hour away in West Central Florida. So the first round of the regional is in Orlando with eight games that day, and the early evening game is my Memphis State Tigers taking on Western Kentucky in a uh, in a matchup in the opening round. And I sat in horror and watched my school go down to defeat and watch Penny Hardaway, who the year before had been in the Elite Eight, an All-American, uh, one of the one of the premier players in college basketball. And he and his teammates go down to defeat to the hands of the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers in a shocker uh, in Orlando right in front of me. It is now 27 years later, and I will will not. How about this part of the story? My my, uh, then-girlfriend, now-wife, is in the stands in the Orlando Arena with my father, who's also a Memphis State alum, 
and they <laughs> and we have gotten tickets to Sean for a friend of ours, a friend of my father's in mind, who is a Western Kentucky alum. And he oh, is uh-huh, he is absolutely out of his mind with Western Kentucky because I believe that was their first ever NCAA tournament win. I may be wrong about that, but they had never won a tournament game, I don't think, up until 1993. But they shock Memphis State. They end the career of Penny Hardaway. I just remember he played poorly. He shot poorly. He was in foul trouble. And Western Kentucky took advantage. Full credit to them. They ended Penny's college career on the Orlando Arena floor. I still have not lived that down from my buddy Briggs. <laughs> Briggs, 27 years later, still lords over me, Deshaun, with that story. But how about Penny ends up being uh, traded to the Orlando Magic on draft night and then played a lot of his NBA career with Shaquille O'Neal and the Magic there in the mid to late 90s on that same Orlando Arena floor before they moved to the new arena that they moved to now, and Penny's obviously now back as the Memphis coach. How about that for a first-round story? So you you lived the horror of 2016 <laughs> remotely by TV. I lived it in person in Penny's final game in college in the Orlando Arena on an opening weekend. Yeah. No, and, and, and I mean, there, there's so many. There's multiple. And I, like I said, all of this goes back to what we love about March Madness, you know, because there's so many people who do watch all the way throughout the the season, and there's so many who don't until the until March Madness rolls around. And I know I said this on the last, so I'm gonna say this one one more time: is that that's what we love about it because there's so much that's going on in the world today. And I know that this isn't necessarily a national holiday for a lot of people, but you know, the, with everything going on in the world today between elections and 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 viruses being spread all around and everything else. To have that opportunity, if we don't do anything else during any other time, we print those brackets out after Selection Sunday, take them into the office on Monday. You have up until 12 o'clock noon before the very first tip-off on Thursday to kind of get your bracket together and put everything together and get you know get it in there and try and win something, a pot for your office pool or whatever. That's just the beauty of it. I mean, I even remember just shortly after 2016, was it 2017 or 18, where, you know, Michigan State had the Miles Bridges and Jaron Jackson had a really, really good team and lose to Syracuse, who's always seems to be on the bubble, uh, right in their own backyard again in Detroit in the Motor City. So it's just all across the board. It's just it's, you, you have to embrace it. You love it. You hold on to it. You keep it with you because the, the, the part I probably love about it the most is the fact that for a lot of these kids, they won't have the opportunity to get onto uh, uh, an, an NBA floor uh, a lot of times and play on it anyways. And so this is their 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 world championship. This is you know their NBA for them. And and to see some of these guys who we've never heard of. We were talking about Loyola Chicago with Ben Richardson and, and Clayton Custer and some of those guys. This is their opportunity to kind of sit back as a mid-major program, which is so many times a lot of them. And, wait until you know they get on the big stage to show that they can play with some of the more elite programs in the country and and, and to see guys stepping off the floor for the first time with their towels over their heads or untucking their jerseys for the last time or their jersey in their mouth and walking off the floor all the way from that point in the first weekend what we're talking about all the way up until you know the national championship where you get an opportunity to get that one shining moment in I mean, there's nothing better than that because we've all either A, lived the college experience 
uh, for the most part, or just have some kind of affiliation with that as we grow up and in, in, into adulthood. And, and that's what I love about it more than anything. It's just memories that you'll never have a chance to get back, but you can relive them through other people each and every single year. Well, and you can relive a lot of this on YouTube. I mean, I may be dialing up Shaka Smart and VCU for 2011. People, people, the memories may have faded. They won in the first four. There is no run to the final four if they don't win the in Dayton. Year. Right, the first, the first year, year the first you four. are correct. What a stat and what a moment to win a first four game and then proceed to pull not one, not two. I mean, we talked about, like, for example, how did Kansas State get into that, that regional final getting to pull uh, you, know, you know, a couple of wins that you look at and go, okay, well, wait a minute, that, you know, that's a run to a regional final. But that, that VCU team beat Purdue and Georgetown on the opening weekend. They turn around and beat Florida State and the top seed Kansas in the Alamo Dome, where you and I have been for a Final Four together a couple of years ago. It, it is amazing what they were able to do. I'm looking forward just to go. I have no ties to Shaka Smart or to Virginia Commonwealth, but I'm looking forward to going back and looking at VCU and some highlights if not some games, of the first four game, and then I believe they played Purdue first. They they played Purdue and Georgetown. I, I don't have it right in front of me. But they played those two on the first weekend just to get out of it. And boy, did they prove that they belonged. And the committee put them in, by the way, as an at-large team and took some flack about their resume versus a couple of others that they left out mm-hmm. back in the day. Boy, did Shaka Smart and VCU make the committee look smart for making them an at-large team for what they did. They but did. It, it, and, it brings and, up a great point because we can go back and relive, like, like we mentioned, exactly how did Loyola Chicago get out of their opening game. Uh, you know, go mm-hmm. back and and relive Wichita State the year that they ran to Atlanta in the 2013 Final Four. How did they get out of their their opening game that year, that opening weekend, that year in pull upsets, uh, and on and on. Whether it's Butler, whether it's I was referencing with Mike DeCourcy, Stephen Curry and Davidson 08 mm-hmm. that that knocked out Gonzaga, knocked out Georgetown, knocked out Wisconsin before George Mason. Yeah, George Mason 06. Go back and relive those games and watch how uh, those teams won at the beginning, before the games we remember mm-hmm. the most. That's what's fun about this about this stuff and about this time of year. All right, my friend, I've and had fun. I'm glad, yeah, I'm, go ahead. Sure thing. No, I'm uh, just one last little piece. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that was a year that we almost seen Shaka Smart not get into the right there on the cusp of not getting into the NCAA tournament. Ended up getting in, making a run to the Final Four. We probably haven't seen a crazier. Uh, a, a Final Four or college basketball season as a whole uh, uh, th- this year. Since that point, here we are another year where Texas is right there on the cusp. Maybe Shaka Smartman, not maybe not you know being on the hot seat, maybe not be able to return to Austin next year. And 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 if he found a way to be in that exact same position again, as wide open as this year was. Who knows? Texas could have said he probably made another run the same way that they did then. So I just thought Great that was point. funny. That and maybe he ends up with a contract years. extension. Who knows? Sure. Maybe he would have uh, had this all played out. So much fun telling stories. Again, uh, we're kind of here in group therapy, Deshaun and I. Promote for the fans. Where are you on social media? How do they find you via uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? Because uh, you, you may be, you may start watching games like me and just start tweeting about them or Facebooking about them, watching them on YouTube or watching old uh, highlights and old games. Plug away on how they can find you and where. 
at Tate's Take Hoops. That is on the Twitter as well as on Instagram, T-A-T-E-S-T-A-K-E-H-O-O-P-S, where, yes, basketball still does live. And uh, I think later on tonight and tomorrow, I'm going to start putting together a bracket of the top 20 teams, one team from each year over the last 20 years, starting with 2000 all the way up until this year, of teams, some of the best teams that did not win a national championship. So maybe that might consist of Cincinnati in 2000. Maybe it might be all the way to Dayton this year. Maybe Connecticut in that 2006. Why do I, mean, I get so- the feeling the 2016 <laughs> Michigan State team might be there after we've been joking that, that got beat well, by Middleton? We'll have to find out. We'll while, have to wait and find out what while, Deshaun comes you know, up with. While, yeah. While that's a strong possibility, we can't forget about that 2015 Kentucky team that started out 38-0. and So there's going to be a lot of moving parts, a lot of layers to the onion. We're going to have a lot of fun with this stuff, and I'm looking forward to promoting it. You can find that at Tate's Take Hoops on Twitter. Yep, find him on Facebook as well, Deshaun Tate on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, all right, I loved this. I hope it was good for you, therapeutic for you. It's good stuff here on the College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast. Uh, we may do this again before we are done here uh, with you just to reminisce, but this was good stuff right now, Deshaun. You hang in there. For the audience, you guys hang in there. We're trying to help you get through it on College Basketball Coast to Coast. Thank you, Mr. Tate's Takes. No, thank you. I feel much better after that therapy session. Now I've got to run out and get more toilet paper to wipe my eyes. Man, we do continue along. This is actually helping, I believe. It's helping me, and I hope for you, the fans of college basketball that are having to do without. 2020 is the year that we had to do without. Such a magical time uh, in March. These three weekends that we're starting for this weekend at the time that you're hearing the podcast, uh, we would have been in the full throes of 16 games Thursday and on Friday, leading to a grand total of 48 games by the time we're all said and done through Sunday, the first four days of the tournament. We don't get any of that. So in a way, this is kind of like group therapy where we're trying to deal with all of it. Uh, And to help me out, I love the insight of this man who's covered and watched college basketball. He's a contemporary of mine for going on probably 35 or 40 years. He's got a lot of memories, historical perspective. Let's bring on Matt Zimmick, who also does a bunch of writing and overseeing of the USA Today college theme website, the Badger Wire, badgerwire.com, and also the USC USA Today website, uh, the USC Trojan Wire website uh, as well, writing about them. Among other things, he's a big contributor also on this podcast, College Basketball Coast to Coast. Same question to you. How? Give me your feelings because everybody's described it in their own words. Give me your feelings. We don't have this. And so we're all going through it together. Uh, what is it like for you? What do you want to say? Well, the main one thing is, is that, you know, on Twitter, first off, you know, we're reduced to having to talk about politics and the government's response to the coronavirus instead of being able to talk about the gosh darn NCAA tournament. But, yeah. but, but my pinned tweet on my Twitter page at Matt Zemick is a long thread. It started on March 14th, Saturday. So I, I've posted at least like 75 YouTube videos of, you know, I did conference tournament games, I posted several selection shows. Then on Tuesday, I posted some first four game clips. And then, you know, we're recording this on Thursday, NCAA tournament first round Thursday. I've been sharing first round game clips and montages 
uh, for much of the day. So it's a huge threat. So if you're depressed as hell and you want some <laughs> classic college basketball to watch, just go to that pin tweet. It's going to remain my pin tweet through April 6th, the national championship game, and it's just going to be classic college basketball. And I should also note for the listening audience, if you don't know, CBS Sports is going to air classic uh, NCAA tournament games over the weekend, three on Saturday from noon to 6 and three on Sunday from noon to 6. And there are going to be three more on Sunday, March 29th, the day of the Elite Eight. Uh, so CBS you know, isn't giving us classic games on midweek days, but it's going to be giving classic games on the weekend. They're mostly national title games. Uh, there's also the Duke-Kentucky Elite Eight game. That's oh. going to be Saturday at 4 Eastern. So th- th- there's some relief. There's some legitimately good sports Yes, and they, they've brought that up in the time that we've been taping the podcast this afternoon and early this evening before it got out. They they brought that up and answered the uh, the outcry of at least give us some games. And part of the complication without going too far off subject and boring everybody, the quick version is that the NCAA controls those replays and game broadcasts, and it's not in CBS's deal to have an unlimited access to the vault of those games per se, and so they had to work out, when can we do it? And obviously CBS has been paying billions with a B, billions of dollars for the NCAA tournament, Um, and so they worked something out. The good news is, as you said, though, they're all over the internet. They're all over YouTube for while they're there. We've been talking about it earlier in this podcast. Go find some of those great first round games that we've been talking about, et cetera, et cetera, and go watch and go enjoy. And I love that thread that you're talking about. All right. So I already know which direction you're going. That actually kind of segues into the first round games that you want to talk about here on the podcast. And it also ties in to CBS finally getting not only full control of the tournament, but being able to televise all the games for the tournament. So where do you want to begin, Matt Zimmick, with, with what you remember about the first round and, and why your your tournament you're going to hone in on was important for those reasons? Yeah, so you know, an important moment for me in my, in my life and in my relationship to college basketball and the NCAA tournament was 1991 because that was the year that CBS aired the whole first round. Uh, and for, for those who are older, you know, those who are at least, you know, I'm 44 years old, so those who are roughly, you know, 40 years or older will remember in the 1980s that it was mostly ESPN in the first round. CBS would do some tape-delayed late-night games. Right. Um, it was kind of a hodgepodge, but you didn't have, well, I mean, first off, you didn't have the 64 team field until 1985. So, like, this. CBS has started televising the tournament in 82. So 82, 83, 84, there was was an odd collection of first-round games. You'd have, you know, a couple in one region, two, maybe just one in another region. In 1984, the field was 53 teams, so you did not have an evenly spread-out amount of first-round games. But, uh, you know, so when when they moved to 64 and 85, ESPN had it for a few years. In 1988... You might remember that it was the 50th anniversary of the Final Four, so NCAA Productions uh, broadcast a lot of games, and they were they were shown in local markets on uh, broadcast network television. But then uh, ESPN still had the first round in 1989 and 1990, so CBS finally broke through in 1991. And then what happens on that first day that CBS has the whole tournament? You have the first ever 15-2 upset. Dick Terrence 
Mm-hmm. Spiders beating Jim Beheim's Syracuse Orange Men. They were the Orange Men then uh, <laughs> in Cole Fieldhouse in College Park. So you had a spectacular day. There was also a 14-over-3 upset in the first round of the 91 tournament. Nebraska was a three-seed. Hard to believe, but Nebraska was really good back then under coach <laughs> Danny Nee. And that, you know, that should have been Nebraska's first ever NCAA tournament win. Nebraska is still the only Power Five conference school without a single NCAA tournament win. You know, Northwestern got that one win three years ago. So Nebraska is the only Power Five school without an NCAA tournament win. And so the 1991 NCAA tournament is part of that story as well. So 1991 with Richmond, Syracuse, Xavier, Nebraska, and CBS getting the whole tournament in the first round. That was a really big deal. And I, and, and we had our, um, high school math teacher at my, uh, Jesuit college prep school in Phoenix. He, he wheeled in a television and because it was on CBS, <laughs> we were able to watch. If, right. it, if it had been on, on ESPN, we would not have been able to see that. So that was, that, that's a day that's going to really stick with me. The first round Thursday of the 1991 NCAA tournament. That that was a game changer what a for memory. a lot of people my age. Well, I shared this in, in talking with Mike DeCourcy at the beginning of the podcast that the year before I had been captivated, as many were, with Loyola Marymount, and I still remember being in the Eastern time zone. And again, I've dated myself. I'm six years older than you. I now am in my second century on the planet as of a few uh, days ago. So uh, I, I vividly remember being a sophomore in college, had come back to Tampa from Memphis where I was going to college, and it's my sophomore year uh, on spring break, and CBS was showing the Loyola Marymount New Mexico State game live uh, on the 11.30 Eastern Time window after the local news, 10.30 Central Time. Now, that was still prime time in the Mountain and Western time zones. But that that just gives people an idea because I believe that CBS maybe had only shown a couple of games, if I remember correctly, Matt, in the evening on the Thursday and the Friday. ESPN had them earlier in the day, and they weren't all televised nationally. Like you, like you pointed out, you couldn't see all of them. So this was the first year that CBS embarked on, okay, we have it exclusively, but we only really have one network. The internet, this is hard to believe, doesn't really exist, as you know, Matt, and for a lot of the audience. So you were getting some games here and there, I guess, you know, regional coverage, whatever, but it's not like for the fan that you had a choice of multiple games to be able to watch. Uh, it's just the way that it worked back then. But that was the first year that, that CBS had them all, and, uh, and eventually... Uh, it worked its way with with UNLV being unbeaten all the way into the national semifinal to Duke upsetting them and then Duke eventually beating Kansas in Indianapolis to win the title out of all of that after UNLV had looked so un- un- invincible. Um, wild. Wild to even contemplate now when we get to see every game on a different network and watch as much of it as you want in this NCAA tournament. It just, Matt, one more time, did not used to be that way. That's your point. It didn't, and I mean, it's, it's, it's really uh, funny to look back and, you know, just recall these experiences as a fan. You know, you remember, you remember as well as I do how it used to be, even in the early years on CBS, forgetting ESPN in the late 80s, but when CBS was still getting used to covering the first round, you know, you'd have the West region, which there would be five windows of games. There would be the two, more, there would be the two main day session windows 
and there would be the two main night session windows. But then the West region would start in the second day window, and that there would be that one West region game that would air in the middle of the afternoon. And so if you happen to have a team playing in that mid, that one mid-afternoon game, it would start around 5 Eastern, you know, you, you were lucky. You, you'd got, you got the whole NCAA tournament first round from start to finish because you'd get the West, <laughs> that West region site. But if you didn't get one of the local teams, you were out of luck. So that one game was kind of happening in a black hole, and you'd, get, you'd miss it, and you'd have to wait until 7 Eastern for, for, the, for the night window to start. And you'd you'd miss that one NCAA tournament game, and so it just you know that was the mid 1990s, and you know so now with you know TBS and TNT and True TV, you know you get that full coverage. So it's it's just fascinating to look back on how even when after CBS got the whole tournament, there were still some obvious loopholes. Uh, and limitations in the coverage of the NCAA tournament. Well, and one thing they would do when you go back and watch these games is you keep putting them on uh, on uh, YouTube and others have them, you keep plugging away about that, is CBS would take you from the game you were watching, depending on the region that you were, to another game, and it would drive people crazy. Because again, once they left... Uh, there was no way to see it if you were still a fan of whoever, of Kansas, UCLA, Syracuse, Michigan State. If if they left your game, Matt Zimmick, you were gone. You were gone until they chose to come back. Uh, you know, they would go to the studio in New York where so many times it was Jim Nance originally, and then they went to others. Uh, after that, Pat O'Brien for, for many years would be sitting in the studio and say, okay, now let's take you to the West Regional and watch the finish of, I don't know, UCLA and Texas, whoever it was, and you, you're you gone from your game with no way to see it, no internet, no nothing else. That's the way it used to be. So we're just kind of reminiscing uh, about uh, first rounds, etc. So if I hit you with this one, I'm, I'm just curious. First round upset that just stands out as, man, that was amazing. I know Deshaun was talking about University of Maryland, Baltimore County. That's the easiest one to go to from two years ago as a 16 seed beating a one. We would all probably defer that that's as incredible as any upset they've had in the NCAA tournament. Do you have another one and why that stands out as, man, that was a remarkable first round game. Where, where was it? When was it? What, what stands out? Okay, well, you know, if, if we're talking about the, the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history, Virginia UMBC is clearly not number one. Interesting. The main reason for that is that DeAndre Hunter, you know, who then helped Virginia win the national title a year later, he was injured. He was out. You know, that, so that was a huge absence for Virginia. So Virginia was probably like a – a three seed in terms of actual manpower or quality. Uh, and UNBC, you know, I think was probably underseeded at 16. So you re- that really could have been a three versus 14 type upset. The biggest one is Middle Tennessee over Michigan State in 2016. <laughs> that Michigan State team had just won the Big Ten tournament. That was a loaded team. It was yep. a veteran team. Denzel Valentine. I mean, that, that you know, that Michigan State team was, 
if, if it wasn't the favorite in most brackets, it was probably a favorite in a plurality of brackets. All right, so let me stop you. Let me stop you because Deshaun is a Michigan State guy through and through. And so he was bemoaning that very game you're talking about, MTSU Blue Raiders. That's their nickname, knocking out Michigan State, blowing up his bracket. Millions of brackets that either had Michigan State in the Final Four. Matt, that year I had them in the title game, to your point. I had them winning the whole thing, and I just told him the story, too. I'm at a wedding. You don't know this. I'm at a wedding that Friday afternoon. Who gets married in the middle of the late afternoon on the Friday of the NCAA tournament, but I'm at a wedding and I did not even get to see the end of it without people coming to me and telling me at the wedding reception hey they've lost so you're right brackets blew up everywhere because of how Goliath that Michigan State team looked and you believe that's the most significant first round upset since the field has gone to 64 well I don't know I don't know about the most significant because like that that's kind of a question of you know consequence and like the ripple effect through the sport, um, I need I probably need time to think about that. But I just, yeah. just in terms of the the, the 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 gap between two teams, that's the biggest one. Wow, in my mind. I know you have another one as we reminisce with Matt Zemek. Follow him on Twitter at Matt Z E M E K at Matt Zemek with great stuff. Love his insight. Give me another one. And in this case, you want to talk about a team that escaped the huge upset. Uh, even when it had been their nemesis, the first round upset as a high seed had been their nemesis under under uh, Lute Olson, but they figured it out. Did Arizona, and you want to make reference to that and what it and what it led to eventually? Yeah. So for for the, for the younger folks in the crowd who don't really remember what it was like when Arizona made the Final Four, you know Arizona has not made a Final Four since two thousand one. So we're we're at nineteen years now. But there once was a time when Arizona, you know, was a, you know an extreme national player, always in the mix for the Final Four. But in 1992, as you indirectly referred to, 1992 at the Omni in Atlanta, Arizona was a three seed, bumped out by East Tennessee State. Next year, 1993 at the Huntsman Center in Salt Lake City, Arizona was a two seed, bumped out by 15 seeded Santa Clara and a guy you might have heard of named Steve. Yep. Neff. Yep. So, so Arizona really struggled in the in the NCAA tournament, uh, also lost in the first round to Miami University, Miami of Ohio, uh, in, in 1995. That was a 12-over-5 upset. So Arizona had a lot of psychological baggage as a program, and Lute Olsen faced a lot of pressure heading into the 1997 NCAA tournament, and he had a freshman-oriented team. You know, that was the Mike Bibby team that had not come of age. You know, in 1998... Arizona was a number one seed. Arizona was a total heavyweight, expected to make the Final Four and compete for the national title. But in 1997, that team was just kind of beginning to figure things out. And so the odds of Arizona making a deep run that year were very low. And in the first round in Memphis at the Pyramid, um, Arizona got a real battle from South Alabama. Arizona got a real an even tougher battle from College of Charleston in the second round. Um, but just to get the details clear here, Arizona had a, had a rough go of it with South Alabama in the first round, but managed to scratch through. And after Arizona got through that first weekend of the NCAA tournament in Memphis in 1997 against a pair of double-digit seeds, it was as though the weight of the world fell off this young team's shoulders. Everybody became loose and confident and began to believe. And then came that, that massive... Sweet 16 upset of Kansas, 
And then the, the bracket gods smiled on U of A in the Elite Eight because instead of a two seed or a three seed, there was the 10 seed, Providence, which was a product of 14th seeded Chattanooga beating third seeded Tubby Smith in Georgia in the Southeast region that year. Chattanooga was the first number 14 seed to get all the way to the Sweet 16. Providence beat Chattanooga uh, in the Sweet 16 down there in Birmingham. So Arizona was able to scratch through that first weekend. Then it pulled off the, the major upset of Kansas, then took care of Providence and presto. Lute Olsen got back to the Final Four, and, you know, amazingly, that team, not one of his truly elite teams from, like, 1989 or, uh, ni- or um, 2001 or 1998 or 2005. No, it was that little pipsqueak raggedy bunch <laughs> 1997, which gave Lute his one and only national title in Tucson. My- Miles and, Simon. And, and, PJ, and, PJ, that was the last time the Pac-12 has won a college basketball national champion. How about that? So forget about uh, the rest of the conference. Forget about just Arizona. No no Pac-12 team has even been uh, in the winner's circle as the national champion since 97. And that year, Miles Simon led them. They beat all the number one seeds. They beat Kansas on the Sweet 16 and then later beat North Carolina and then upset Rick Pitino's Kentucky team looking to go back-to-back. The Wildcats beat them in the national championship game in overtime. So incredible, incredible stories and and what might have been where you see teams escape in the first round of the tournament and then suddenly make a run into the final four of the championship. So Arizona came to mind for you uh, for that year. So we've had so much fun talking about all these first round games and and we would have been so looking forward to, all right, what's going to happen with Dayton in their first round matchup or San Diego State in their first round matchup or Florida State? What would they have looked like maybe as a two seed against a 15? Maybe they'd have been a one against a 16. I don't know. We'll never know. We'll we'll never know. Uh, you know, the Big Ten tournament champ would have probably been a two seed playing a 15 seed. Which one would that have been? You just know there would have been an upset or two or three. It, it always seems to be that way, right? Craziness. It, yeah, and, and the thing that I regret not being able to see about the NCAA tournament, as though, you know, not being able to see the NCAA tournament isn't enough of a lot right. on its own. The thing right. that I was really looking forward to was having another not very traditional final four you know last year we had auburn and texas tech yep. uh in the final four not non-traditional basketball schools getting their moment so that we were we were set up for something very much like that this year you know a final four was florida state and dayton and san diego state you know it really would have built on the 2019 trend having fresh faces in the Final Four, to me, it's a great thing for college basketball that it breaks up the blue bloods and the monopoly. You know, the, the sense that you know it's always going to be one of the one of the brand name heavyweights. That that Final Four last year in Minneapolis was refreshing and it was really darn good. And I was looking forward to another Final Four with untraditional matchups, like a you know imagine a Florida State San Diego State national semifinal. You know, to me. To me, that's great. Now, now a lot of people might be turned off, you know, by not having that heavyweight presence. But to me, that would have been fun and new and interesting. And that's what I'm going to miss. And we never had that possibility at the 2020 NCAA tournament. It's a great point uh, that you make 
that, uh, you know, watching all of these, especially the mid-majors, the little guys, work their way in. Loyola, Chicago, a couple of years ago. Uh, before that, the likes of Wichita State. We were talking with Deshaun about VCU. Um, it's something that, I, I, again, I'll, I'll say it again because I said it with Mike DeCourcy. you got to be careful of the words never, uh, forever. Uh, as I joked with him, the, the three words together, I love you. you got to be careful of those words as well. So I use the word, <laughs> I use the word never uh, about being in the building in, in downtown Tampa, what's now the Amelie Arena, in 2008, and two 13s and two 12s won on the same floor in the same afternoon evening. Incredibly, I don't believe that's never going to happen again. Never going to be seated that way again. It's just not going to happen again. Uh, and so then, you know, you got to be careful when you're using never, but for Shaka Smart's VCU team to be in the first ever first four, and we didn't know what was going to happen with those teams, what they would look like when they won, and they had to turn right around and play two days later in another city, and then and then battle two nights or a day and a half later against another bigger opponent. They they were undaunted. They won five games in a row out of that first four as a mid-major, and it was just incredible that it all started in Dayton in a first four game before they ever got to Purdue and Georgetown uh, after that, uh, before then getting to Florida State, speaking of them, and top-seeded Kansas. So these are the things we go back to, whether it's George Mason making it there. Butler was in the national title game back-to-back years in 09 um, or in 10 and in 11. So that that's the that's the real point that you're making. We don't know who that would have been out of one of these conferences that maybe makes a run because it it it, uh, it never got to play out. We're all left to imagine, we're all left to wonder. So Matt, any any final thoughts here as we talk about the first two days of the tournament or the first weekend of the tournament, anything else that you want to share here in in closing on the podcast? Well, in terms of memories and, and reminiscing about the experience of being a, a TV watcher for the NCAA tournament many decades ago, one of the other things that was, you know, just seems so quaint now uh, in retrospect, is this, this also comes from having lived in the West and, uh, you know, experiencing the, the scheduling of the tournament relative to the Western sites. Um, it used to be the case also this, now, this is not a first-round thing with that you know, mid-afternoon game at 5 Eastern. This was more about the second round of the tournament. If you, if you, you, I don't know if you remember this, TJ, but um, when there would be a Pacific time zone site on Sunday, they would play the first game in mid-afternoon, so like right. the lead-in to 60 minutes. But then sometimes there would be a game on during the 60-minute slot. And so that second round game would be treated much like that five Eastern Thursday game is that if you, if your home team was there, you got an extra NCAA tournament game on second round Sunday, but if not, you were out of luck and that game occurred, you know, again, in a black hole. So my specific recollection of that was that in 1990, a tournament you referenced, you know, Loyola Marymount, Michigan. (laughs) Yep. Which we've talked about already. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that was the national lead in the 60 minutes, but then Arizona and Alabama played after that game in Long Beach. And I do not think that was a national game because that was in the 60 minutes. You're correct. Time You're spot, correct. But because I was in Phoenix, I got that game, got to see Arizona lose to Alabama. So that was just another uh, fascinating little detail of the experience of watching the NCAA tournament on television 
30 years ago, younger fans would go, what? You mean they didn't have every game nationally available? <laughs> and it just seems so absurd in retrospect. Hey, forget forget having it available on a TV. How about not available in the palm of your hand to be able to switch the feed on your phone, which we've been able to do now for about seven, eight years at least, where all of it is streaming on your phone and you just switch to the other game that you want to watch uh, on your phone if your game is dull uh, it, it did used to be that way, and uh, yeah, that that Loyola Marymount Michigan game still resonates uh, thirty years later. Uh, as I said with uh, with Mike DeCourcy, and you could comment on this real quick. They were so far ahead of what basketball is now with understanding tempo, speed, three point shooting. Um, we would have to go back and look, Matt. It would be a fun exercise to go back and look that in that NCAA tournament, other than Loyola Marymount. Show me the other teams that attempted that attempted 11 three-pointers in a game as a team. Now, maybe Tom Penders is Texas team, and I've talked with him all the time about that 1990 run. Uh, he had Travis Mays. He had Lance Blanks. They would shoot a bunch. But besides Texas, show me another team in that 64-team field that year that would have had 11 trays attempted as a team. Jeff Fryer made 11 of them, made 11 in that game with Michigan by himself. They were so far ahead of what modern 2010, 2015, 2020 basketball has become. It was amazing to watch. And again, you can go back and and relive on YouTube. And then, of course, you referenced Alabama. Uh, they beat Arizona, and then they played the slowdown game on Loyola Marymount. They were the kryptonite. They were holding the ball and making every possession count more because they were taking time off the clock and held Loyola Marymount to 62 points before they, they finally hung on to win. So these are the things that we reminisce about uh, here out of the uh, out of the NCAA tournament. But uh, magical stuff. We, we're without it this year, but thank you, Matt Zimmick, for taking part in the group therapy here. Hopefully for the fans, they've enjoyed all the reminiscing, but I appreciate your participation. This is great stuff, uh, and we encourage everybody to follow you again at Matt Zimmick because you're going to tweet away on this opening weekend and throughout March here about the NCAA tournament, my friend. Yeah, just go to my pin tweet. You could ignore all the BS I spew about politics. Just go to my pin tweet. That's the only one. And just look at that mega thread. You'll have lots of YouTube college basketball. Let me, hey, let me plug. Go down that rabbit hole, baby. Yeah, well, let me plug that you put one up on this first Thursday, and I've not had a chance to look at it yet, but some guy, until they take it down, has a four-hour block of ESPN showing games and cutting into other games, and that's just gold. That is gold to yep. click on and just watch uh, how they went from game to game on ESPN trying to show them. Because, again, if you're if you're in different parts of the country, you weren't seeing most or all of any of those games. You were only seeing maybe a, a part of it. So go relive it. Go find his yeah. Twitter feed, at yeah. Matt Zimmick, and that pinned tweet, and you'll see that link right there. Just, so just to be clear, there's a guy on YouTube who has like two, three, four-hour blocks of just live look-ins, snippets analysis of ESPN and CBS coverage of the opening weekends of various NCAA tournaments from the late 1980s through the mid 1990s just ultimate comfort food that that's really the best viewing like if you don't if, if unless you really like watching one team in one game just these three hour four hour blocks of clips 
it, it is really the ultimate rabbit hole experience. Highly recommended for these times. And again, I'll say it one more time uh, for all the upsets and all the stuff. Go go go! Watch Loyola Marymount with a hundred points in the game with ten and a half minutes left against Michigan. I'm going to say that again: a hundred points in an NCAA tournament game, and there's ten and a half minutes left, and they scored forty nine more in the last ten and a half minutes with Fryer bombing in the threes and Bo Kimball scoring. I know that's a weekend game, a second round game, but this is what it's all about. Go back and relive. Matt Zimick, thank you. It was a treat. I appreciate it here on College Basketball Coast to Coast, sir. Thank you for doing this podcast. It makes me feel better. Love that. Our thanks also to Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News. Follow him at TSN Mike. Also, Deshaun Tate, Mr. Tate's Takes. That's uh, T-A-T-E-S-T-A-K-E, Hoops. Tate's Take, Hoops. Go find both of them. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you find podcasts, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Spreaker. And we'll come back and do this again in March and just kind of reminisce maybe about Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, the Final Four, tell some stories. I love all of that. And for my latest guest, Matt Zimmick, I'm TJ Reeves. Thank you for being with us in the March. Without the hoops, we're here for you on College Basketball Coast to Coast. Bye.